Welcome to Journals of Self-Discovery. Hello everyone, my guest for today's episode is Michael Taft. Michael was introduced to me by my wife Amy, and I was so impressed that not only did I decide to interview him, but he is participating in a retreat that we are holding March 3rd through the 5th. You can learn more about that by going to poetryinmotionfilms.com and looking for the March retreat link at the top of the page. Michael has over 30 years of meditation experience, and as you'll see in the interview, he was able to quickly and clearly explain a different approach to what I consider one of the toughest conundrums in meditation, that of awareness watching awareness. I hope you enjoy this interview with Michael Taft, and please check out the show notes at spiritualteachers.org forward slash podcast. Well, Michael, thanks for joining me this morning. I, I appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule. Happy to be here, Sean. I, uh, I've read a little bit of your book, The Mindful Geek. Uh, I've watched you have a few videos uh, available on YouTube. I've taken a look at those and... And I think I've actually been to your your meditation class one or two times. Uh, I, I know one of the questions that jumped into my mind from reading The Mindful Geek is you mentioned just a little bit about your your background, your history. And um, I'm curious, really a, a little bit of the story of how you got interested in meditation, how your life took a turn down that path? Yeah, it's pretty simple. Um, I was raised in a family where um, even though we were nominally Christian, my mom was actually interested in a lot of alternative religious stuff. She um, didn't really practice it as such, but she was very, very... um, open to the ideas of, you know, different um, religions or different understandings of Christianity. And so it was always very eclectic and um, kind of an atmosphere of uh, openness around spirituality. Um, Mm -hmm. It was also, uh, there was some difficulties in childhood and in uh, my teenage years that caused me to have a really bad trouble with anxiety. Um, you know, I was having crippling anxiety attacks. I'd spent a lot of time in my room, uh, just basically, um, frozen in terror and I needed to do something about that. It was a a big problem and I didn't really, you know, this was in Michigan. This is in the seventies. There just Mm. wasn't that much help available. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, I didn't know how to ask for help anyway, even if it had been. So um, the one thing I knew about, in quotes, was meditation. And I hadn't done any. And I didn't, you know, at that point I didn't know any teachers. And I um, didn't know how to find any teachers. You have to picture a pre-internet world. Um, right. And also, you know at that time there probably were very few even though I was in you know Lansing so the the Michigan State University is there and there's 
you know, potentially there was people who knew, but I didn't know how to find them. Um, and so I, but I knew it existed. And so I just started working on that myself. Like I tried to find books that could tell me something about how to do it. And then I started practicing in, um, in a very rudimentary way, you know, sort of how any kid might try to do something out of a book. And I think basically what I was doing initially was something along the lines of, uh, of course, they wouldn't have called it this, or I wouldn't have known it was called this, but something, looking back, something along the lines of a yoga nidra visualization thing. Um, You know, visualizing parts of your body relaxing and so on. Um, And I also just took a look at my own experience and I just had this very kind of natural, um, inquisitive experience around my own anxiety. And, um, it sounds kind of, uh, like a obvious point now these days, but that back then to me, it was a blinding revelation where I realized, um, gee, every time I have an anxiety attack, it's because I'm thinking about what's going to happen in a week and a month and six months and a year. Mm -hmm. And what if I just didn't allow myself to do that? What if I only allowed myself to think about the very next actions I have to take um, for, let's say, tomorrow? What do I have to get done for tomorrow? And then if I try to think beyond that, I'll just stop myself. And that was actually um, a big deal because that sort of um, uh, jammed the mechanism of anxiety so it couldn't work. It made it so it was very, very hard to, um, I I might be worried about tomorrow, but I wasn't having an an anxiety attack about tomorrow. Mm Mm-hmm. And so that really, um, that combined with doing these meditative visualizations on relaxation, um, you know, where you would kind of um, visualize, let's say, warm uh, light filling your right hand and each finger and then warm light in your palm of your hand and, you know, like that and do it for your whole body, um, which I must have read out of some paperback somewhere. Um, that stuff together really worked. Mm-hmm. It really helped me. And, um, I stopped having bad anxiety attacks. And then from there I was sold. I, um, I did, uh, when I went to college, I started doing yoga and I found actual meditation teachers and, um, you know, pain relief is a big motivator. Pain is a big motivator and pain relief really, um, uh, gets your attention. And so I was, I was hooked. I was very into it and have been ever since. Mm-hmm. Now, was there a, was there a point in time for you that, well, for example, some, uh, a person can be in pain and find something that alleviates that pain. And then they're fine with that. And they, and they stop there in terms of a, meditation practice let's say well in, in your experience it, see, it seems like you kept 
getting deeper and deeper and deeper into it, at some point, would you say that um, the anxiety and, and so forth and the pain wasn't really what was driving you anymore in your meditation, the relief from that? Yeah, I would say that um, even though I did get a lot of relief from that and it was un, you know, it wasn't manifesting in the form of these intense anxiety attacks or uh, these other super difficult emotions, that I was doing um, enough deep work that I kept finding new layers of anxiety or new layers of difficult emotion or new layers of suffering uh, further and further down in there. Not that I was looking for them or trying to find it, but um, because I was doing practices that were very awakening oriented, you know, it keeps kind of um, jamming your nose into the stuff that's not awakened. Mm. And so um, it certainly was motivational. Um, I think, however, the um, the biggest experience uh, also at college was um, of um, experimenting with entheogenic compounds, mm-hmm. which... Um, really opened things up at a dramatic level for me. So that um, took what was a a good, solid practice and kind of um, uh, ripped the top off of it and made it so I realized um, I really could go quite a bit deeper than I had ever imagined. And so it was very inspiring to do do that and to... um, uh, realize that in my meditation I could uh, find similar depth and openness and experience on my own without any uh, support. Mm-hmm. Another person might have just kept experimenting with the hallucinogens or whatever in, in particular it was uh, and have gone down that path yet... For yourself, it, it sounds like you you went down the path of meditation instead. Did did you have a sense, or did you have advice from someone that you know meditation is actually the more powerful practice or the most efficient way to to get what you were sure. after? Sure, sure. I mean, by this time, you know, we're talking um, years later in college and so on. I'm a a big reader and I was taking, you know, religious courses. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, my professor way back then, when we're talking in the early eighties, my professor was Paul Muller Ortega, who has since become a luminary in the, um, in the Shaivite Hindu tradition in America, mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. well known guy. And, um, you know, I'm, I was going to every sort of different, uh, meditation experience, whether it was Zen or Hindu or um, even like New Age stuff. And um, and so, <clears throat> you know, there was a lot of people who were like, yeah, this will, uh, this practice will get you what you're looking for and it will get you there on your own. It's fine that you sort of have opened this door with these experiments, but now you want to be able to walk through the door on your own. And I thought that made perfect sense. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very um, highly motivated. I was really into it and um, ended up going and working and teaching in Japan um, for several years uh, and doing martial arts really intensely. And that gave me um, a lot more space and time to be meditating. And so I put in a lot of time there. And, um, you know, it's just, it just gets more and more and more interesting. Um, And I was more and more fascinated by every aspect of it. I never did um, really settle on one particular teacher or one particular tradition, although I, you know, have definite favorites that I've spent decades with. Um, I wouldn't say that I approach this from the perspective of getting involved in some kind of religion. I've always been interested in awakening and uh, love and freedom, not um, a particular path. Mm-hmm. And, and who are some of the your favorite teachers? Well, that I've actually worked with, um, I really spent uh, quite a bit of time working with um, a woman Hindu guru named um, Anandi Ma Patak. She uh, is quite young and lives in um, California still. Um, and her teacher was a ancient sadhu, you know, a, a wandering, uh, broke, spiritual seeker named uh, Tian Yogi, very unusual, very unusual uh, moniker, uh, Tian Yogi, mm-hmm. Madhusudan Dasji. Madhusudan Dasji is real normal uh, name, but uh, Tian Yogi is this unusual sobriquet. Um, in any case, he, um, I went and worked with him over in India, and this is someone who was like well over a hundred, and um, and uh, you know this is straight up Hindu tantrism, large emphasis on Kundalini, on mantras, on yoga, on pranayama, mm. on ritual purity. Mm-hmm. Um, worship of various deities and so on. So um, that was actually the only thing I found that was as truly powerful in terms of just plain um, experiences and going deep as uh, my experience in college had been. So I really trusted that path because it was it was quite clear to me that um, um, the the practices did what they said on the box, you know, if, if they told me that this was going to have such and such an effect, very often it had exactly that effect. And so I really, um, loved working with them and I still work with them to some extent and, um, uh, spent a lot of time in India and, and, um, fully involved in Hindu practice. So that was, uh, just beyond wonderful for me. I loved that and still, like I say, still do some of that. Um, uh, and during that time I started working at Sounds True as the editorial director, which means I had a unique opportunity to, um, bring people in to the company to record, to, I could find new authors. I could find 
pretty much any teacher I wanted and bring them in. So I had this huge um, exposure to every different kind of tradition. And when these people would, um, when the authors would arrive and, and work with us, they might stay for three days or even a week. And so I got to spend quite a bit of time um, producing their programs, talking to them at great length, understanding their thinking. And um, it just uh, was interesting because I noticed that, um, you know, who was acting how privately and who seemed to have something um, really going on and who didn't. And, you know, this was just my personal judgment about that, but um, I felt like it was really fascinating who seemed to buy their own spiel, <laughs> and, you know, right? and who seemed to actually know what they were talking about. And of all those people, for me, the most fascinating, and a lot of them were very fascinating, but the one who resonated for me the most was Shinzen Young, um, for a whole bunch of reasons. But I think the main reason was he seemed to be coming from, um, A, a perspective of really, you know, having experience and knowing what he was talking about, but also because he was as eclectic and um, world-traveled and exposed to all these different traditions as I was. So he could talk to all those different um viewpoints on on meditation and viewpoints on spirituality as I could. So I felt like here's someone who actually isn't just, um, you know, totally involved in the viewpoint of their one tradition mm-hmm. and only able to speak to spiritual experience from one tradition. And, um, and understands that it's important to look at this stuff in the original languages if you can. And it's important to uh, understand the historical perspective and so on. Um, to me, that was just very refreshing. And so I started working with Shinzen and um, still do. So those are probably the two um, biggest and most, um, you know, the, the people who I've spent the most time learning from and practicing with, although I've learned and practiced with many others. Just as a side note, did you, did you study uh, audio engineering or something like that in college? How did you land a, that sweet job? It sounds true. You know, I've just always been interested in recording as a kid. I would record um, programs on like a cassette tape deck, like not even a deck, like the, just picture like the world's crummiest cassette recorder from the sixties. Mm-hmm. And, um, but even back then I was figuring out how to, um, make programs. Like we would, um, think of all these ways to, uh, do multi-tracking, even though we had, we didn't even know what multi-tracking was, but we've figured out that if you got two recorders, you could record something on one and then, play that while you recorded something on the other and you would get um, two tracks on there and then you could play that out loud and record on the first tape deck again and now you'd have three tracks mm-hmm. so that was even as children and so um, there's just always been this deep interest 
And um, uh, then when I lived in Japan, I, um, I was exposed to a lot of technology that, that uh, I just wasn't seeing in the States. And in college, we did a lot of um, um, bouncing back and forth between bigger tape decks, but still multi-tracking in that way. Um, but when I was in Japan, I was making good money and had very low expenses and ended up buying a Tascam four-track recorder. And that was just um, like kid in a candy store. I just spent endless hours and days and months um, recording and multi-tracking um, over and over and over. So... Um, by the time I came back to the States, I, I was, um, let's say highly conversant in recording and from a lay perspective. And also, you know, I had a big background in what amounts to world mystical traditions because I just re I uh, was endlessly reading. Um, and I'd also had some very, um, extreme awakening experiences and so, um, it's funny, I did not land the job at Sounds True because I was a recording person at all. Um, I landed the job because I was walking around Boulder and saw that there was a, um, angel on the door that, I don't know if you've seen the old oh, Sounds True logo yes. from, mm-hmm. you know, 30 years ago, but there was an angel and I just saw that angel on the door and I was like, well that's where I want to work. And I walked in and got hired to ship boxes. And back then Tam, Tammy hired everyone herself. So, um, Tammy and her partner, Devin. So I went into their office and, um, they asked me a few questions and I was like, yeah, well, I can ship boxes for you. (laughs) You know, it's not going to be hard. And, um, and so I just was uh, working in the shipping department, but, um, then, uh, there, was an opening in the office to um, work on writing and I've always been a good writer. So I uh, auditioned for that and they were totally, utterly skeptical and, but I got it and, um, and then just worked my way up from there. Wow. Great story. Yeah, it was fun. Back then uh, there was only like something like 12 or 13 people in the company and it was just great. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you, did you ever feel any, conflict between let's say the the path of tradition and what what some people might think is more of a uh, an american approach or western approach of well i'm going to pick the best from all these different traditions and assemble my own path did you ever feel like maybe you were missing out or or why, why didn't you, why didn't you say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to follow this, this Hindu teacher. I'm going to do exactly what they say, because eventually that's going to get me what I want. Well, I actually did do that for, um, let's say a number of years. Mm-hmm. It was like, well, I'm going to just do this and concentrate on it and do exactly what they say. And, I ended up getting, you know, involved in a um, celibate marriage and being um, essentially a lay monk Mm -hmm. um, for years, you know, doing um, really serious 
Hindu practice. You know, this is not the, um, this is not what's available at your local you know, mm. yoga center. This is gotcha. like, you know, food rules and all, all kinds of really crazy intense stuff. And, um, um, so I really did put singular effort on that for a long time. Um, mainly because I had just hung out with the teachers, you know, um, th- these were not well-known teachers with millions of disciples or something. These were teachers that I could hang out with in their home, spend a, a tremendous amount of time working with them personally. And so I just loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved being in India when we were there. Um, I loved the fact that everything was in Sanskrit. I just, for whatever reason, really like Sanskrit and um, back then memorized endless um, verses and so on. So it's not like I was flitting um, carelessly from thing to thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I like to dig into whatever I'm working on in, in Shinzen system as well. I spent many, many, many years basically doing only Shinzen type stuff or almost only. And um, so I really like to um, go deep. Uh, and at the same time, I um, it's just my bent of psychology or whatever. Um, uh, the internal contradictions of any system are something that eventually um, sort of bug me, and I want to work on the shadow areas. I want to work on the stuff that the system doesn't address or doesn't let you talk about or, um, um, or, you know, there's always the case that you may be having experiences that that system doesn't, um, even address. So to me, the, um, the places of, um, overlap are interesting. Like there's, of course, um, aspects of spirituality and meditation and awakening that are the same in every tradition. So that's powerful and interesting and tells us something about human beings. But there's also all the stuff in each tradition that is completely unique, and that is where they've sort of worked on their one corner of awakening to the nth degree, and they, they've really you know brought that out and kind of uncovered this one corner of things. And to me, that's even more fascinating, like um, getting in there and, and sort of, in one way, like intellectually understanding what's unique about that tradition, but in, in practice, um, really touching that, that experience and that unique corner and understanding that they're the ones who are really working on excavating that corner of things, if if that makes any sense. Hmm. Could you could you give an example of? You mentioned the shadow or the shadow side. Uh, can you give an example of that from from something something that you noticed in a tradition? Yeah. So when I was in Japan, it was interesting because I was doing a lot of. Um, Zen meditation. I wasn't um, at a temple formally. I wasn't a monk, but I was going to temples and and meditating in a in a lay practitioner way. 
um, and was getting a lot out of it. Um, but I started having um, a lot of uh, very intense energy experiences. Um, you know, a lot of physical energy, a lot of altered states. And um, especially as a lay practitioner, the, um, the Buddhist Zen way of dealing with that was, well, don't make a thing out of it. Mm. That's great. You're mm-hmm. having, so you're having some experiences. Just keep sitting. And, you know, many these many years later, um, I see how that's good advice. Okay, that, that works. It's, it's a reasonable reaction. But at the time, I was like, listen, this stuff is, you know, b- blowing my mind. I'm having these very intense experiences. And as a lay practitioner, it's not like I'm in a monastery working with someone every day or in the, you know, protected safe zone crucible atmosphere of a monastery. I'm out in the world and I I just, I need to work with this stuff. This is intense. And, um, you know, they just were not interested in that at all. That's not what they do. Mm. And so that's when I initially got, um, interested in Hindu stuff because they were willing to go right at it. That's the corner of, you know, the, the vast, the vast universe of awakening, that's the part of it that they're really, especially this tradition I was working with, they're really interested and competent in and want to work with. So the fact that they were willing to talk to me about these experiences and give me tools to work with them effectively, um, to me was, was like, great, let's go there. You know? Mm -hmm. So, um, there, there's, there's always, um, aspects of awakening that some you know a tradition really emphasizes and and sort of um gives you pat on the back for having and then there's aspects of experience that they don't like so Mm -hmm. and either they don't like or they don't really go there they don't know much about it so um and the you know the two things i often heard about that from the people in the tradition was either, um, well, we don't go there because it's not worth going there. You know, the old, like, that's not really enlightenment or that's not awakening or that won't lead you to awakening or that's not useful. Um, so that's, you know, one sort of reaction that you get. And another one is just, um, we don't know about that. Although that's that even that is rare to hear. Mostly it's like that that either, you know, that's either bad, wrong or not worth doing. Um, people won't use the, those exact words, but, you know, that's the that's the idea. Like, don't go there. And that's always been a, um, a like a sore point for me. I don't want to be told don't go there. Mm-hmm. I want someone to to speak knowledgeably about that whole aspect of experience. And that's something that I try to bring into my own teaching these days is wherever somebody's coming from um, and whatever kind of experience they're having, I try to meet them there to speak their language and work with them um, in the way that they think is interesting. You know, And sometimes... Uh, people do have certain types of experiences that I know someone who can work with that better. And so I'll, 
you know, uh, point them in a different direction. But um, I'm never saying like, yeah, that's a bad direction or that's not an interesting part of of your mind or awakening. It's It's all fascinating. It's all interesting. And I really respect the fact that all these different lineages, all these different teachers and traditions have focused on different parts of it to to bring it into high relief and that we have that available to us. So I think, you know, you use this phrase like American spirituality, trying to get the best of everything. Um, and I would say, you know, I'm not, I, I wouldn't say that I'm looking for the best of everything. Um, because that's just not my, how my psychology ended up unfolding. It's more like, um, I want to know the whole territory of, of, um, spirituality or the whole territory of my mind. And so instead of being the best of everything, it's just, um, more about wholeness and really understanding where different traditions are coming from and what they're working on and having some, actual experience in those directions. And so, um, I feel like, you know, having this kind of more, more complete map is really, um, the name of the game for me or has been the name of the game for me. I always liked, um, uh, the books about Sri Ramakrishna, you know, the 19th century Indian mystic, because um, they would always emphasize how he had gotten um, awakened in something like, I think the number is like 36 different traditions. So after his initial awakening, he then practiced in, uh, he found, you know, he was living at a temple in, in um, as a, as a um, priest, he, found teachers of every different kind of tradition over many decades and had them teach him their best stuff. And so he ended up getting awakened in all these different ways. And uh, in fact, uh, the American teacher Lex Hickson, who I just loved, what an interesting, fun, brilliant guy, uh, wrote that book called Great Swan. And uh, he really emphasizes this aspect of Sri Ramakrishna's um, personality or awakening or whatever, that he could switch from mode to mode Hmm. to mode, things that we would sort of uh, traditionally consider to be entirely different styles of spirituality or entirely different paths to awakening. Um, could just switch between them effortlessly and talk from each of those places. Now, to me, that was, um, obviously he's a a virtuoso of this, but that is something to be emulated. That to me is quite fascinating. And I find it, um, I don't know, maybe a little disappointing or frustrated when people, um, when people insist that there is only one kind of awakening and only one way to be enlightened and that um, even if there's many paths to get there, there's this, there's only this one thing that's interesting. So just as an example, Sri Ramakrishna um, was very 
uh, devotional towards the Hindu goddess Kali. Mm, right. In like, and and he was raised in a village in Bengal. So you know, we're talking you know uneducated in a village in Bengal. So he had a very um like traditional religious viewpoint of just loving the goddess and and uh, doing his practices for her and um, that was sort of his original initial awakening and it's quite fascinating because even many years later when he um, had learned complete non-dual thusness that um, denied all spirituality of any kind or and thought all practices were ridiculous um, and he had mastered that and um, you know could demonstrate to other people that he had mastered that um, he said he still preferred to just um, come down from that and have an I thou relationship with the goddess because that love aspect and that worship aspect was so pleasing Um, and I just thought, God, that's so fascinating and interesting. It's, um, we always think that there's these levels and, and layers and that certain enlightenments are better than others and that everyone would always want the one that's better if they had it. Right. And, and it wasn't like he was avoiding, you know, this more Advaita non-dual awakening. He would go there, but... Um, it's in the end for him, it's just sort of like, you know, he liked rock music instead of country music, you know, he's like, well, I, I just prefer to, to, to worship the goddess. It feels great. And, and he wasn't insisting that everyone else should think that was the best thing. He would teach them all kinds of stuff. So it wasn't some kind of statement of what's better than another. And, uh, instead it was just, he, you know, he had sampled all these different ways and not just sampled, but actually found awakening in, you know, dozens and dozens of different paths. And that was the one that just worked for him, uh, in the, in terms of like his own personality. And I just thought that was, I think that's great. I mean, there's things to criticize about Sri Ramakrishna and, and so on. But to me, that was, that's kind of, um, uh, an archetype of what is an interesting sort of awakened teacher to me is someone who is just able to do it all and able to teach you how to do it all and interested in all of it. And not saying that one thing has to be considered better than another in some kind of absolute way, even if he has his own opinion about what he likes kind of personally. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there is an an end to the spiritual path? Absolutely not. No? Absolutely not. But it never stops. If you think you're at the end, uh, you're more deluded than when you started. It's time to to really examine your assumptions uh, about what a human being is and what a human being's capable of um, and what your goals are. Because... um, like I've said, no matter what awakening you have found, and I hope you found a lot of awakening, there's always other angles to come at that from. Other, um, I don't mean other experiences necessarily, but other ways to come at awakening. And beyond that, there's other ways to grow as a human being. 
There's always more psychological work to do. There's always more service to be involved with. There's always ways to uh, work on unpacking your own shadow. Um, So to me, anyone who is saying that they're somehow finished is um, just um, not aware of their own complacency or assumptions. That seems to be a, that, uh, I think that in itself seems to be a tradition, if you will, that, uh, well, there's, there's the teacher, there's the guru, and they have, they have attained something, and, and now they're done, and now they're going to tell other people about it, or how they got to it, and give them advice about how they got to it, and so forth. Sure, that's a, that can be a traditional attitude, but, you know, the traditional teachers I've worked with um, are very humble and are always continuously working on, on themselves and working on their awakening and um, working on uh, finding those spots in themselves that are still stuck. Because this is what's so fascinating, right? You can be, uh, you can have found a brilliant awakening, a deep, 100% valid awakening. Um, And obviously, that's real good. Um, But in a way, that can be um, like a window. It's like there's a window in the wall. And now, you know, this is how I talk to my students who have found some level of awakening. I'm like, now your job is to make that window bigger and bigger. Um, because it's all you've done is like poked a hole. Mm-hmm. And the rest of your life is about making that hole bigger. And there's no end to that. There's no final moment where it can't get any bigger. Um, because there's always some part of your own psychology or some part of your own um, behavior in the world that is that needs work, that needs some um, some healing and some compassion and some awakening. So um, and so that you can help others, so that you can be more effective in the world. And um, it's the people who are surrounded by disciples who tell them that they're perfect and people who believe that a teacher should be finished with the spiritual path and done with uh, their job of awakening. It's those people who start really doing bad stuff, molesting their students, um, playing power games, all that kind of uh, malfeasant behavior because they um, are forced by the um, the geometry of that situation um, to pretend they don't have any problems. And so their problems start to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually they're acting out in these terrible ways. And then you get their students who believe that the teacher must be perfect then not giving them any corrective feedback and so it just gets worse and worse so to me that whole idea like that there can be a perfect master that they can be finished um, is just a recipe for disaster now that doesn't mean that um, 
that people can't feel done. I mean, it's perfectly legitimate to be like, look, I found what I was looking for and now I'm going to go, you know, Mm -hmm. do something else. Um, To me, that's, that's a different question. It's not, that's different than saying like, I'm, I'm as enlightened as it's possible to be and every part of my psychology is now perfect and I'm just going to go be a perfect master. Yeah. Um, it's, it, that's different. It's legit to say, look, I, I woke up in this way that I wanted to and, and now I'm going to go, you know, learn to ski or something. Great. You know, to me, that's, that's different. I, it's very, very common to have a um, powerful awakening experience and to feel kind of done. You know, Okay. That's, that's what I wanted. Now I know what that is. And, uh, now I'm going to go do something else. Uh, that's, uh, that's a different matter entirely. Yeah, I can, I can relate to that. I, I don't know about you, but there was a, a core dissatisfaction or a core fear really in me that drove my spiritual search. And the resolution of that did bring a feeling of, oh, that, that's been answered. That's, yeah, wow, okay. But then I also see what you're saying, that, yeah, absolutely, there is no end to widening that window and widening one's ability to help another person and be a more be a more true manifestation of whatever it is that that a person awoke to yeah i mean uh, i relate to that entirely there can there's there's the there can be this kind of core uh neurotic quality or core anxiety or core issue that is driving you driving you driving you it's at the base of all the seeking and just like um people say once that's dissolved and once you've got uh once you become awake to what that really is um that's gone and that motivation to practice to wake up from that it disappears Mm -hmm. uh, completely right it's just gone and so it might be the case that for years you know or even the rest of your life you feel okay well i'm done with that um, what I found, however, is that, well, there's always another part of your psychology that it might not be that painful. It might not be driving your whole life, but, um, you know, oh, interesting. There's another neurotic fixation. There's another stuck point. There's another, um, uh, way that I'm behaving in the world that is just not helpful. Um, and so there's always that stuff to work on. And, uh, I feel like every day just being, um, a human being, more of those start to arise. And if you didn't keep practicing, you know, there would be, um, or even if it's not practicing in the literal sense, even if you didn't keep on top of that, you'd start building up a new crust of, of uh, neurotic problems. Um, so to me, it's a, it's a lifelong thing, um, that must be attended to and is pleasant to attend to. And especially with the kind of openness and sensitivity that, um, 
that you end up feeling. Uh, I almost I feel like an obligation to other humans to just get better and better at this stuff. Um, and by that, I don't mean to turn into some sort of um, bliss ninny or person who only <laughs> ever feels good. Um, right. I'm just not interested in that at all. You know, I I, I think that's silly. Um, you know, it's, so it's not about always being happy or always being, you know, um, in the sound of music, dancing and singing or something. It's, um, you know, but it also means that um, you're, you're trying to not come from a reactivity place. No matter what emotions you're having or activities you're involved in, you're coming from response and um the unfolding moment in a in a in a non-reactive manner so Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't have to look pretty (laughs) it can look real Mm non-pretty but on the other hand if for example you are um you consider yourself to you know have gotten the awakening you want and now you're going to go off and, and work on um skiing again, which I think is great. Um, check out how you are behaving with your partner. Check out how you're behaving in your work life. Check out how you treat a waiter or waitress. Check out, um, you know, how your manifestation is happening in the world. How much of that is, uh, again, it's not about whether you're getting angry or sad or whatever, because I think if you maintain your humanity at all you're going to be angry and sad sometimes um no in my opinion no part of awakening says you're supposed to have certain emotions and not have other emotions um but um you know are you really always coming from the place that you want to be coming from in your interactions with other human beings and with animals and uh, with all life and, you know, really being serious with yourself about that. I, I see so many, there's so many possibilities for spiritual bypassing on these points. Just for very human reasons, people use those spiritual bypass techniques to get out of working on their stuff. And again, I, I don't think that's a crime or some kind of um, a sin. It's just... Um, that's the kind of thing that, um, for me, I believe that people need to be working on forever. And as I described, it's, it's, um, the case that when you think that you have no more growth to do, that you're going to start really running into problems. I mean, without mentioning any names, um, you know, I was, very aware and closely associated in certain teaching ways with, you know, one of the most enlightened masters on the face of the earth, um, a Buddhist master who was obviously um, a master's master master in the art of meditating, um, and, and yet was sexually molesting all his female students, um, and had been doing that for, let's say, like 40 years and the other students were just letting that happen and hiding it from 
from other people. You know, that's what you get when you start thinking there are perfect masters. I mean, obvious bad behavior that just needs to get rooted out, that needs to be fixed. Mm -hmm. And all that's keeping that person from fixing that is the belief that it doesn't need to be fixed because they're perfect. And and once they stop getting feedback from their students, like or peers like hey you're you know you need to cut this out once that kind of feedback stops then then the wheels come off when you said peers i i couldn't help but think of the peer review process perhaps that's what's needed that's right and um not just peer review to like test whether you actually have awakening but which is interesting but in a way not even the point the peer review is more about are you behaving badly mm-hmm. as a teacher? Are you using your um, position to get power or over people or to use them sexually or to um, enrich yourself in sort of a, um, in sort of a way where your greed is out of control? Um, you know, like the 20 Cadillacs version of spirituality. Mm-hmm. You know, these, these are the kind of things we need, a real um, peer review process on so that um, people don't lose the feedback that they need to function properly. Mm-hmm. You know, we are social animals who evolve to work together in a group and we need continuous feedback from others to behave properly. If you check out the situation of various dictators who have lasted for a long time, um, like decades as dictator, they end up being very strange people, extremely strange. And um, I just don't believe that they started out that weird. They may have been a sociopath or whatever, but um, it's the fact that for 20, 30, 40 years, everyone is so afraid of them that they just say anything that they do is great. Oh yes, that's great. And when you, when that's all the feedback you get from every person around you for your whole adult life, you start getting very strange because people need the feedback of other people. Well, I, I would like to talk to you a little bit about uh, some of the nitty gritty of meditation. And uh, I'm especially interested in what you call uh, the process of deconstructing the ego Uh, And first off, could you just tell me how do you define ego? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's the important question. So, um, uh, in this case, I would say that just in a, in a very ballparking kind of way, the ego is, um, sought, um, the ego is a construction of thoughts and feelings. Okay. That's it. Obviously, that's not um, a full definition, but that's close enough. Um, And it's a kind of um, avatar that one uses in one's head to plan. The brain is evolved essentially as a planning device. It's a prediction machine. You're going to predict and plan how to get food, how to get shelter, how to find a mate and all this stuff. And as part of the, um, 
visioning process for what you're going to do next, you have a mental construction in your mind of you uh, going and doing that stuff. You have this imaginary uh, avatar in your head of the, the you that goes and does things or the you that in, the, in memory went and did things in the past. And um, it's very much like uh, if you play on your Xbox or PlayStation, some kind of first person shooter, that person on the screen that uh, is made just of photons, but it's um, a three-dimensional representation of you on the screen that's going and doing stuff. It's um, very similar to that, but it's made of, again, not to put too fine a point on it, it's made of thoughts and feelings. And uh, we need egos to function properly in the world. They're not imaginary or bad. You absolutely require one. But um, in order to have um, some level of awakening, it's extremely important to understand that that's not you. And there's a lot, a lot, a lot of different techniques to um, get to the place where a human being understands that that ego avatar, that mental construction of themselves isn't actually themselves. It's, it's, one, thing to, uh, it's one thing to know that intellectually and another one to experience that right i have known people who who can say and i believe experientially that okay i can see thoughts moving through my mind maybe they're pictures words whatever i can see that i can see feeling come up i can see how that is is a thing separate but it's still a thing separate from me there's still a me in observer perhaps you could call it a witness i think some people use that term do you find people coming to that same place uh in in your meditation and how do you advise them to get past what i think may be a, a block of coming to a sense of yes i am the meditator who's observing these things but i can't get past that i I've deconstructed myself to a degree, it seems like, but there's still a very firm sense of, I am, I'm a person, I'm an individual who's meditating. Yeah, you know, that's a very common pitfall, or I call it a failure mode. It's a common failure mode, especially in Vipassana meditation, mindfulness meditation, uh, where, you know, the instructions are to become an observer. Mm -hmm. uh, people get really, really, really good at being an observer and there's nothing wrong with that. You get a handle on life and stuff doesn't bother you as much and you're behaving much better to your fellow beings. <clears throat> but as you said, you can still, um, even though you're getting a lot of mileage out of your practice, you're still not getting that awakening. <clears throat> And um, there's a very good reason for that. And it, it's actually the, a, a real known failure mode of Vipassana. Um, it's one of the ways that Vipassana is cr critiqued often by other Buddhist traditions. Um, is that in the end you're building, and you even kind of said this in your question, you're building sort of a meditator. 
you're building a witness. And um, mm-hmm. as long as that meditator or that witness remains outside the meditation, um, it, it remains unexamined. And so there will always be this um, ego of the meditator or ego of the witness that is doing the practice. And so let's say you've got a handle on 99% of your ego activity through this witness. Again, that's really good. But as long as there's this tiny little bit of, of ego being the meditator, of ego being the witness, um, it's still completely unawake. And so um, the trick is to understand that that meditator ego is not some kind of special, um, intangible, bad thing. It's just some other thoughts and feelings. It's thoughts about doing the meditation. It's body sensations about being a meditator. It's mental images about what you're doing as you're meditating. Um, And so the cure for this is from this way of working. There is a Vipassana way of overcoming this pitfall of Vipassana, and that is to just take the same exact method that you are using on the rest of your ego, that is deconstructing the thoughts and feelings, and you turn it back around on that meditator and um, deconstruct the thoughts and feelings of being the meditator. And, um, you know, my favorite story of this is from Ken Wilber, who was sitting in a a Zen retreat, or, yeah, a Zen retreat, and um, had gone very, very deep and was talking about his witness experiences. And in a very Zen way, the teacher said, the witness is the last uh, refuge of the ego. And Wilbur, I think, more or less recognized that suddenly and kind of had a, a, a major awakening from that instruction. And that's what that teacher was saying. You know, like, hey, you got to look at the this witness person, this meditator person, and deconstruct that. And once that's deconstructed, then then suddenly, boom, you're awake. So um, uh, that's what, in with this particular failure mode, with this particular aspect of Vipassana, which happens a lot, um, that is the way out. That, um, at least the way out that, that still uses Vipassana, right? There's other ways out, but that's, that's, um, uh, it's a very interesting thing that happens to a lot of people and it's very predictable. And what I find sad sometimes is how many, um, mindfulness or Vipassana traditions. Well, let me put it another way. I, I see people who've been practicing Vipassana for decades who, never get the instruction of how to get out of that cul-de-sac. And it's really actually quite easy. So it's sort of, um, I don't know, a shame that um, not more people are aware of how to get out of this trap. It's called, you know, called the observer trap. Well, Um, uh, let me dig a, a little bit deeper into that because this is something that, that I was 
definitely stuck in. And in one of your talks, you use the, the phrase, a hall of mirrors. And I really related to that because uh, the observer watching the observer, watching the observer, watching the observer, on and on and on. And I, yeah, it definitely felt like a, a trap or a dead end of, of yes, I, I can see myself observing, but I literally experienced that as yet another observer who just noticed that there's observation going on. I don't know if you call that the tenacity of the ego or what, but uh, just now when you said, well, the, there's actually a very simple way out of this, you, you mentioned explaining to someone intellectually that, well, this is what's going on. Uh, and you mentioned the example of, of Wilbur, who had a sort of in, perhaps an, an intuitive grasp or an insight that, that sprang upon him. Is that what has to happen, uh, an aha moment, or is there something that something more that can be said about how to get out of that? Um, I'll try to talk about it in another way. Okay, um, that might shed some light. Um, this idea of the hall of mirrors—that there's sort of an observer watching an observer watching an observer—and um, when you think about it, that's a spatial metaphor, mm-hmm. and it means that there's an observer over here looking at something over there. And then there's another observer somewhere else looking at that thing over here. And it's like a physical spatial metaphor. You're trying to find a place where the observer is sitting in space. Um, or where the, um, the, the final awareness who's not an ego is located. And, um, so that's a spatial metaphor. And I think that it's that metaphor that's the issue. Mm-hmm. Because really, this is more happening on a temporal plane. Uh, it's more time-based. So um, you'll notice um, that you're witnessing something, and then there arises this sense of, so let's say you're witnessing something that's some um, thoughts and feelings of ego and and then you'll notice that there was the ego of the meditator observing that well that took some time that's in fact a, um, the next thing that arose and then as you keep looking there will be the next thing that arises and then there's the next thing that arises um, and these um it's almost like these waves of thought and feeling that are the next observer and then another wave that's the next observer. Or another way to describe this is there's the thoughts and feelings of the thing that the observer is looking at and then there's the reaction to that and the reaction to that is the next thought and feeling observer and then the reaction to that is the next thought and feeling observer and it's so it's it's like this um, wave that's just continuing in time, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not in space. And so as, if you understand that egos aren't these like fixed structures that are just sitting there and you're trying to find place in, in space to put them, 
that metaphor just doesn't work. Instead, it's like they are these waves, these coming together of reaction in thoughts and feelings. And you see that it's just the next one, the next one, the next one, the next one. And you underst- what you understand is that there's always going to be the next reaction. There's always going to be the next reaction. And you understand that that's not ever you, none of those reactions. So I think it's this attempt to put things uh, in physical space to locate these different observers that ends up being sort of the, the Hall of Mirrors problem. Um, and that my solution to the Hall of Mirrors is that it's not a Hall of Mirrors. It's simply um, a continuously rotating, you know, unfolding thing in time. And that it's just the next reaction is the next thought and feeling ego arising. The next reaction is the next thought and feeling ego arising. And by just observing that over and over and over, it becomes stunningly clear that none of those is the, the like, quote, real position. Now, that doesn't mean somehow no thoughts and feelings are going to arise. Sure. And it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that you might not even grab onto some of those thoughts and feelings as a uh, identity. But you're, you, you get the sense that you're, instead of stuck on a branch, so to speak, and observing from this special place, that instead you're swinging from branch to branch and none of those branches is a special place. And at that point, there's this opportunity, and it might just be an insight to just let go of the the next branch. And it feels like, for many people, it feels like you're falling through space. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they avoid that, but actually you kind of want that kind of disorientation or falling through space that comes from not grabbing on to the next um, thought and feeling identity that arises. Mm -hmm. And instead, just let that arise. And, and that's when it, it completely dissolves and you're, um, not, um, trying to land on any one of those identities. The whole trouble with the way that people talk about it is they think they're going to find a place to land as this right. non-dual witness. Sure. And Place, the only place to land is in thoughts and feelings. So they're just trying to find this more and more um, simple, expansive, peaceful thoughts and feelings. And, and that's a totally false direction. The direction is to not land anywhere. Your, your examples from your life have shown that's not always the best thing to just do what the teacher tells you to do. That you, you need to have some sense of inner guidance perhaps and i'm wondering if if you feel like is there a is there an intuition that's separate from thought and feeling um or is intuition just a refined feeling is there do you have any sense of being guided through life well the first thing i want to say is that probably more than being guided by intuition in a lot of these decisions. I was just guided by my personality, which is kind of an asshole. Mm. And 
you know, who doesn't, who, who refuses to believe something just because somebody told me. Uh, uh-huh. um, uh, I can, in certain ways, I'm uh, very skeptical and want to, I'm just naturally or psychologically drawn towards the exceptions and all the ways it's not true and the thing that they're hiding and the thing that they won't talk about. And that's just where my mind goes. Mm. And so it kind of just whatever the um, sort of default personality structure that arises has that sort of dickish skeptical thing. And I think that in many ways that's helped me a lot. Um, um, So there's that. It's just simple. Yeah. On the other hand, I do think that um, intuition is obviously available. I mean, I can talk about it in many different ways, um, but I'll just go from a more science-y perspective, a science-y perspective, and say that, um, you know, there's many, many, many simultaneous parallel streams of processing going on in the brain, like thousands and thousands of unconscious processes or networks firing in your brain. You can see the the images they've generated of a person's brain working and there, there's a lot going on at any one time. Yeah. And um, one of the things that meditation does is makes available um, some of these lower levels of parallel processing that were not available before you were meditating. And so um, there's some very cool science about this where they have where they have people draw cards and they get money if the cards are good and they get money taken from them if the cards are bad. I'm, I'm butchering this experiment because I want to hmm. describe it quickly. But the point is, and then they hook these people up to a stress machine as they're doing it. And the point is that eventually people just figure out that some of these decks are bad. Like the researchers actually made some of them non-random and they were going to lose money picking from that deck. And on average, it took them 40 draws to finally realize, oh, I'm not going to use that deck anymore. But based on the um, readings from the stress machine that they were hooked up to, Hmm. they started experiencing stress when they drew from the bad decks after only 10 tries. Right. So it's that gap between some part of their deep unconscious knowing those decks were bad, which happened after only 10 tries, to that material filtering up to their conscious awareness so that they would stop drawing from those decks, which was after 40 tries, that 30 round gap is something that we can make much, much, much smaller Mm. through meditation so that as you get more and more sensitive to your own uh, body sensations, your thoughts and feelings, um, you might notice even on that 10th try when you start feeling stress, like, oh, that's a non-random deck. That's bad. I'm not going to draw from that anymore. Um, to me, that level of intuition is uh, cultivatable through meditation. It's very 
predictable that you will get better. You know, your actual, the insula structure in your brain gets much, much, much larger from doing mindfulness meditation. The insula is what allows you to have interoception, which means feeling your own internal sensations. So it just makes sense that uh, you get better at feeling these very subtle emotions of stress or feeling thoughts and feelings of stress around um, around things that your unconscious has been aware of that you have not consciously been paying attention to. Mm-hmm. So to me, that kind of intuition sort of opening up to the massive parallel processing of the deep mind um, is one of the results of meditation and is available to you. So, yeah, I think it's really helped um, my intuition a lot. Um, That being said, you know, in my life, intuition or gut feelings or whatever have always been a major guide. Um, I've taken enormous decisions just based on uh, my intuition about them. And sometimes that's been good and sometimes that's been not so good, but, um, that's always been a source of real guidance for me. Yeah. So, uh, one quick question and then we'll wrap up. Uh, is there a book that you recommend most often to people? Um, the mindful geek. I'm not familiar Uh, with this book. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, of course, I, you know, to me, that's like, okay, here's a bunch of stuff I have to say about, about meditation Mm -hmm. all, you know, wrapped up in a nice package with a neat bow. Mm -hmm. Um, but I assume that's not what you were asking. Uh, No, that's actually, uh, yeah. Other people have, have said that. (laughs) And if that is the one good. Yeah. Yeah. Although we could ask if there's a, a, a a runner up book. You know, my favorite spiritual book really is um, I Am That by Sri Nisargadot Maharaj. Oh, I didn't know that uh, uh, you were interested in him. Oh, of course. Mm. You know, it's a that's a spiritual classic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, especially when I was involved in, let's say, um, a more theological version of spirituality, the book was really hard for me to understand. I read it over and over and over and I could feel the awakening that he was speaking from. And I I was very interested, but I just couldn't get it. Um, but since I've been coming from a more naturalistic and I'll say maybe not science based, but sciencey perspective, um, the book just gets easier and easier and easier to understand. I feel like stuff that I was, things that Sri Nisargadot is saying in that book, I previously took as a metaphor. And it's taken me a long time to realize he's not making a metaphor. He's talking about his direct experience. And that's um, made the book come alive for me again after all these years. It's really rare that a book will become more and more alive in in the in the information way, in the teaching way after decades and decades, but this is one that does. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always, I love that book and recommend it often. Okay. 
Uh, so you have your book, The Mindful Geek, which uh, I have a copy of in front of me right here. Uh, what else are are you involved in, and where should people go to learn more about you? So I'm doing a lot of teaching. I have classes and retreats. I've got um, a uh, online mindfulness of emotions class that I'm extremely interested in and happy about. It's called Mindful Emotions Training. Um, if you want to find that or get a free um, electronic copy of the Mindful Geek book or want to listen to a bunch of guided meditations by me, that's all available at themindfulgeek.com. And then most of my blog posts, uh, hundreds of articles on various aspects of spirituality by me and also by my friend uh, Jessica Graham. Those are available on the blog called deconstructingyourself.com. So those are those are just a few ways. Uh, and almost all of this stuff is free. The blogs are free. There's no advertising on the site. The um, guided meditations are free. Um, I teach classes in, in the Bay Area that are free. Um, there's a little bit of stuff on a YouTube channel. Um, uh, and then the uh, Mindful Emotions class, the online course, is uh, paid. So there's really uh, a huge number of ways to connect with the stuff I'm talking about. Nice. Thank you, Michael. <laughs>